How many people here remember the movie The Exorcist? All right, got a few people. That's kind of going old school there. Uh, it's an old movie about demon possession, and the famous scene is where the kid's on the bed who's demon-possessed, and their head's spinning around and creeps everybody out. Well, there's a, there's a Saturday Night Live skit uh, with Richard Pryor, and, and you just got to go with me here. Richard Pryor is, is, is playing a priest in this Saturday Night Live skit, and Steve remembers this. And he's trying to drive this demon out, and he can't do it. And finally, the demon starts talking about his mama. And Richard Pryor says, I know you ain't talking about my mama. And at that point, he attacks the demon and drives it out, and, and everything's good. And you have to go YouTube it. Um, but, but I tell that story for, for two reasons. Uh, one, I think it illustrates the way we tend to think about Satan and demons. Either it's something we just kind of laugh about because it's silly, uh, or it's something, you know, we go to the movie to be scared by, because we like that for some reason. But we know this isn't really real. So we don't, we don't put that much stock into it. We laugh at it or we're scared by it. But at the end of the day, that's just Hollywood stuff. We don't take it that seriously. Jesus did. Jesus did. Uh, and it wasn't that in Jesus' day, you know, they didn't know that much about mental illness, and now we understand it, and they were just mistaken about all these things. No, there was, there was mental illness in Jesus' day as well. But there are also people who were really possessed uh, by the demonic, by demons. Uh, you don't see that as often today. You, you hear about it perhaps in, in stories that missionaries tell as they come back from other countries. You hear about it occasionally uh, today. But in the West, for the most part, well, we don't hear about it that often. Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons is that, th- that we don't hear about it that often is that because that's one of the ways Satan works. He's happy for you to be a materialist and to, to, to completely doubt uh, the supernatural. C.S. Lewis talks about this. Uh, he's happy to work behind the scenes. It's like, okay, you, you go ahead and disbelieve in demons and in the satanic and I'll do my thing. And you won't put up much of a fight because you're not aware of our presence. Uh, but Satan, demons, evil, that was a reality in Jesus' day and it's a reality today as well. So we're going to look at this text and think about that for a little bit. Mark 5, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is God's word. <clears throat> they came to the other side of the sea. <clears throat> To the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, 
And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, this is your word, and we pray that you would cause it uh, to come to life uh, for us now, uh, and that you would work in our hearts and our minds and our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a recent book uh, that, that came out. It's titled, Lost in Transition, The Dark Side of Emerging Adulthood. Uh, and in this book, the authors spend a period of time observing the lives of 18 to 23-year-olds. And they come to this conclusion. They contend that many young people lack the vocabulary to speak in moral terms. Right? Not just that, that, that we're relativistic, but, but that we actually lack the vocabulary to speak and to think in moral terms. Uh, they said that six out of the ten students or young people that they talked to uh, said that morality is a personal choice like the length of your hair. It can be long, it can be short. It's up to you. Uh, one college student who said, you know, I don't cheat, but I don't judge other people who do. And then she said, I guess that's a decision that everyone is entitled to make for themselves. I'm sort of a proponent of not telling other people what to do. Uh, one man said this, what you may think is right may not necessarily be right for me. Understand, it's all up to the individual. And then someone was asked about murder, and they said, <clears throat> I mean, in today's society, sure, like, to murder someone is just ridiculous. I don't know. In some societies back in time, maybe it's a good thing. So if you can jump in your time machine and go whack somebody, then, then, then that's okay. Uh, it's, but, but it's not just 18 to 23-year-olds that, that are thinking this way. Uh, many people today would say, maybe you would say, uh, it's wrong to impose your morality on someone else. Uh, they've got to decide what's right and wrong for themselves. We've all got to decide that what's true, we decide what's true, we decide what's right, we decide what's wrong. And that's, that's very common thinking in our culture. And yet, this week even, this week, what's been in the headlines all week? Uh, especially if you're following sports, and even if you're not following sports. Uh, the story is the alleged abuse of young children by an assistant football coach at Penn State University, and then the failure of the administration to act on that news when they heard about it and to do something about it. Uh, you've heard this man's actions described as evil, uh, I've heard people say, this is the worst thing you could do to a child short of actually murdering them. 
Uh, you've heard the, the inaction of the university described as a moral failure. Now think about those. See, at, at the end of the day, as much as we want to say, oh, just do whatever you want to do, you decide what, for yourself what's wrong and right. At the end of the day, we still want to hold on to the fact that some things are right and that some things are wrong. That some things are actually evil and cannot be tolerated. See, we still believe that it's wrong for stronger individuals to take advantage of and to hurt and to harm weaker individuals. And I want to ask why. Why? On what basis do we say that? If... uh, the evolutionary worldview that, that everybody seems to assume is true. If that's true, then what's wrong with it? What's wrong with the strong hurting the weak? Now, there's an author by the name of Annie Dillard who decided she wanted to get back to nature. And so she went and spe- spent a week uh, at a creek in the mountains of Virginia getting back to nature. And what she realized, or not a week, a year, and what she realized during that year was that nature is all about violence. It's all about the strong taking out the weak. Uh, And this is what she said. uh, There is not a person in the world who behaves as badly as praying mantises. All right, and you can go look up what praying mantises do sometimes. It's not very pleasant. Uh, But wait, you say, there is no right or wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely, we are moral creatures in an immoral world, in an amoral world. Are, and, and paraphrasing here, well, maybe our feelings are out of whack. Maybe our emotions are wrong. We're the freaks, and the animal world is fine. It's how it's supposed to be. So let's all go have lobotomies to restore us to our natural state. We can leave and go back to the creek and live in its banks as untroubled as any muskrat or reed. You first. You first. There is no right or wrong. Morality is just a human concept. We're all just highly evolved animals. Okay, well, you go get your brain operated on and go live like an animal in the world where the strong kill the weak every day. Go ahead, that's natural. And we would all say, no thanks, no thanks. See, we know that the things that, uh, that allegedly happened at Penn State we're wrong. We know that it's wrong for the strong to prey on the weak. We know that for all of our talk about moral relativism, that some things are right and some things are wrong. They're even evil. Uh, Bertrand Russell wrote a book many years ago entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. Uh, and he said that it was this story that we just read that offended him more than any other story in the Bible. He said, it's just unbelievable What's said here in this passage? And yet, all this passage does is paint a very graphic picture of what we all know is true. Evil is real, evil exists, and evil is incredibly powerful. We all know this. We know this because we're made in the image of God who is the moral law giver. And so we recognize good and evil. If there is no God, then, then fine. The strong kill the weak. And there should be no problem with that. That's just survival 
of the fittest. Uh, But we know that's not right. We know that what happened at Penn State isn't right. And the fact that you know that, that everybody knows that, is a pointer to the reality of evil, and it's a pointer to the existence of God. It's a pointer to the one who walks into this graveyard in this picture and confronts evil and does something about it. See, we're, as a culture, we're, we're losing our resources to talk about evil, for understanding evil. The Bible gives you resources to understand the existence of evil in our world and the evil in our hearts even. See, the picture the Bible paints is that all human beings are evil to one degree or another. Now, we may not be equally bad, but we're all evil to one degree or another. We're all, to some extent, influenced by the power of the devil. Uh, Listen to some of the things Jesus says. John chapter 8, he's talking to religious leaders of the day who opposed him. All right? he's, not, he's not talking to demons here, he's talking to religious leaders. Uh, and he tells some of them that they were the sons of the devil. Abraham's not your father, your father is the devil. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He's talking to people who are Christians. All right? And this is what he says to them, they're followers of Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's saying to them, do you know what you once were? That's who you were. But look at who you are now because Jesus Christ has shown up in your life. You know, I, I think because of the... the environment we live in, sort of the, the, the sea we swim in, uh, where everybody decides what's right and wrong and good and bad for themselves, uh, we have a strong reaction to, to this sort of talk, to hear somebody say, we don't like being told we're a sinner, that's just antiquated religious word, much less being taught that there might actually be evil inside of me. Uh, and, and I'll grant you here that the demoniac that this is an extreme example of this. But he's just on one end of the spectrum that we can all find ourselves on at one place or the other. Where it's the te- whether it's the temper tantrum of a child, whether it's my anger and selfishness, um, whether it's the hateful way we speak to other people with whom we disagree, it's all on there. It's all on that continuum of, of sin and rebellion and evil. Some of you may have read the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, In this book, uh, Dr. Jekyll starts to realize that he's this mixture of good and evil. And he's got this feeling that 
you know, I could do a lot of good things, but this evil within me keeps holding me back. And so there's got to be a way to separate the evil out so that I can do more good deeds. And so he comes up with this potion that he invents and it drink, he drinks it so that during the day he's Dr. Jekyll and he can do all these good things and everybody will see them and he can accomplish all of these things. And at night, the bad side comes out, Mr. Hyde. But that's, that's out of the way. It's not going to be that big a deal. It certainly will be outweighed by all of the good stuff he can do. He can keep it under control. The problem is, when his bad side comes out at night, it's much worse than he ever thought it was going to be. This is what he said. I knew myself at this first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold, ten times more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, And the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. Every act and thought centered on self. And he loved it. He wanted it. He delighted in it. He was Dr. Jekyll by day, but at night he was Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde was hidden from the world. Mr. Hyde only thinks of himself. He doesn't care if he has to hurt you to get what he wants. You see what he's saying? He's saying Mr. Hyde is you. Mr. Hyde is me, but it's hidden. We do everything we can do to keep it out of sight, to keep it hidden from ourselves, to keep it hidden from other people, but it's there. It's there. There's an, there's an obsession with self in each one of us that pushes me and allows me to do whatever I need to do to get what I want, whether it hurts you or not. We hide it, but certain situations bring it out. Uh, the same DNA that's in the child abuser is in every one of us. It's there. And often the right situations, the right potion, we come into contact with the right potion, and out it comes, the Mr. Hyde within each one of us. Well, when Dr. Jekyll finally realizes what's happening, he quits taking the potion. He's like, I can't be running around killing people at night. Uh, And so he he takes the potion, and he resolves to, to straighten up and fly right, and, and to do even more good deeds. Uh, and and he seems to be doing a pretty good job at this, until there's this one day that comes, and he's sitting on a park bench, and he's reflecting on all the good things that he's done. Uh, all of the good things that he's done that outweigh certainly all the bad things he did as Mr. Hyde. And he says this, I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. At the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down. I was once more Edward Hyde. See what happened? He suddenly had become Mr. Hyde without taking the potion. 
Uh, one writer puts it this way. He, he knows that he's a sinner and he's desperately trying to cover those sins with his good works. But in those very efforts to be good, he doesn't become less prideful. He doesn't become less self-centered. He becomes more prideful and more self-centered. He's superior. He's self-righteous. It's all about him. He's Mr. Hyde all over again. See, the self-centered, do-what-I-want, irreligious person and the superior, self-centered, self-righteous, religious person are both Mr. Hyde. They're both all about them. Hyde is you. Hyde is me. Do you see the power of sin? Not out there somewhere, but in you. In you. Well, if evil is real, if sin is real, not just in this demon-possessed man's life, but in my life, and it even has the power to disguise itself as religion, how do I find a way out? Who's powerful enough, who's big enough to do something about it? Uh, Some would say sin and evil, well, these things people do, it's just psychological. All you need is counseling. Uh, Others would say, well, it's just sociological, and all we need are more social programs and more education and more money. And as valid as some of those things may be, doesn't that in some way trivialize how great evil really is? Uh, Some would say it's evolutionary. We just need to deal with it by drugs and chemicals. But again, why deal with it? Isn't strong the strong over the weak, the way nature is supposed to work? So why are we even bothered with it? Uh, And some might say, well, look, I know I've got a problem, but I don't need counseling, and I I don't need another class, and I certainly don't need drugs. I can take care of this. I can work harder. I can can be better. I can turn over a new leaf. Uh, Don't you often hear that? Can't, Can't we all strive to be a better whatever, country, city, place, person. I can do this. It's within my power. And what the Bible is saying is you don't need a little help. You need a Savior. You need someone from outside of you to deal with the evil inside of you. Now, you may see this text, uh, this man, this this lunatic, this demon-possessed man as an extreme example And you may say, well, maybe he needed a savior, obviously, but but I'm not I'm not that bad. But think for a minute. Is there anything in your life that's out of control? Are there desires in your life that you can't get a handle on? Are you anxious? Are you restless does your anger flare up unexpectedly are you cutting yourself hurting yourself 
trying to do something about the shame and the guilt that you feel. Mr. Hyde is in you. And Mr. Hyde is in the people around you. And sometimes they sin against you in horrible ways. See, we don't, we don't just need help. We need a Savior. Uh, some of you may say, well, look, I, I like the idea of Jesus, but he just torment me. He just give me rules. I'd have to change my life. None of my friends would understand. And you see, there's, there's Satan at work right there trying to blind you to the mercy and the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you might say, well, you, I, I, this all sounds great, but I'm too messed up. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. You don't know the way I've been tormented. You don't know the stain that I carry, that I live with every day. Look, look at this passage. If there's hope for this man possessed by a legion of demons, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. Uh, and all that, all that I would say to you is run to Jesus. Crawl to Jesus stagger to Jesus, however you can get there, come and throw yourself at his feet. Because you don't need help. You need a Savior. Uh, the song we sang says it so well, out of my bondage, out of my shame, out of my failure, out of my arrogant pride, out of my fear, out of the depths of ruin, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come to you. There's one last thing I want us to see here. And I want us to see everybody's reaction to what Jesus did. All right, Jesus cast the demon out, sends it into the pigs, they go drown. How does everybody react to this? Well, the demons are saying, don't torment me. They knew who they faced. They knew that one was there who was more powerful than them, and at the end of the day, they couldn't resist him. The crowd, after this happens, begs Jesus to leave. All right, it's kind of surprising, doesn't it? They beg Jesus to leave. They're basically saying, This is too crazy what you just did. We'd rather have a demon possessed man roaming our graveyard that we can stay away from and that we can keep under control than to have Jesus show up like this. At least we had our pigs. At least we had money. At least we could do our thing and we could kind of quarantine crazy dude. This is just too much. Guys, how often do Christians, do Christians, here's the people we want in the church. Uh, We want slightly bent, generally moral people to put on Jesus hand sanitizer and hang out with us. We don't want Jesus bringing really broken people into the church and working on them. Because that upsets the nice, sanitized world we've created for ourselves. There was a a church that our family attended once. Uh, It it wasn't around here. And there was a guy who who came. He had some mental issues. Uh, And if you saw him, you would think that he was homeless 
Uh, and he would drive you crazy sometimes talking to you. He would drive you crazy sometimes with the questions he would ask at a Bible study. Sometimes he'd have very profound insight. Sometimes he'd want to talk to you about whether Adam and Eve were aliens. And so it was, you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. He would roam the town and collect stuff. And he had many warehouses filled with stuff. His apartment was filled with stuff. And he had all these stuffed animals that he would bring and give to the children in our church. And you're always kind of going, ah, what do we need to do with this before we let the kids play with it? It's dirty, there's lice. It's, you're like, well, but, but it was a gift. And so you think, I think we still have some of those uh, stuff. Maybe we should do some those stuffed animals uh, that he gave us. The, the elders sometimes would have to sit down with him. I remember them having to sit down and talk to him because he would like to sit next to women at, while we were eating and play with their hair. And they had to sit down and have a conversation with him. You, you really can't be doing that. And so you're always a little bit uneasy and you're always kind of keeping your eye on him. And yet we found out at one point he could sit down and play the piano by ear. You say, hey, play Amazing Grace. Okay, no music, nothing at all. This, this amazing gift that he has. Uh, well, we had a friend who would take him home occasionally for Thanksgiving dinner, and he texted me the other night, and he said, you're not going to believe, I'm, I'm taking him with me to, to RUF tonight, and he's sitting on the front row uh, of RUF. I don't know how this is going to go. I got no amazing conversion story there. He might be a believer for all I know. But, but my point is this, Jesus gets involved in messy people's lives. And sometimes Jesus brings messy people into your life as well. And he's going to bring messy people into the church. And he's going to call you to go places and get involved with people that you don't want to go. You don't want to go there. And so at times we react just like the crowd. Jesus, this is too much. Why don't you go somewhere else? if we're going to be involved with people like this. What about the man? What about the demon-possessed man? Uh, he begged Jesus, let me go with you. These people are crazy. I, I want to go with you. You made me well. And Jesus turns to him and says, you know, i got something else for you to do. I want you to go home to your friends and your family and tell them what the Lord has done for you. I want you to tell them that God has had mercy on you. And the text tells us that he went home and he began to proclaim all over the place what Jesus had done for him. And people marveled at this. If you're a Christian, then, then that's where it starts. This is where it starts for you. Go home. Tell your family. Tell your friends what Jesus has done for you. For some of you, going to your family and friends and talking to them about Jesus is the most uncomfortable place he could send you. But that's where he's sending you. Well, so what? What do you need to do today? Uh, maybe you need to fall at the feet of Jesus for the very first time. Maybe you need to come to Jesus and receive him and rest in him. Uh, maybe you need to go home and ask yourselves hard questions about why this good news isn't so good to you. 
and isn't that exciting to you and you don't really care about telling anybody about it. And you ought to ask yourself, why is that? Maybe uh, you simply need to rejoice uh, as we take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. Maybe you just need to rejoice in the gospel, in the good news that Jesus saves sinners. And then leave and start telling other people about that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you intervened in this man's life in a dramatic and amazing way. And it's hard for us to see, but we need you to intervene in our lives in dramatic and amazing ways as well. Lord Jesus, would you deliver us from evil, from the evil within us. We pray it in your name. Amen.